Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on September 21st, 2014, 10.30 a.m. Today's message is the Ten Commandments, Part 2, God is Invincible, by Pastor Isaac Whitney, based on scripture reading, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 to 6, and Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Just before we pray and begin the message, I'd like to point out a couple of things. Uh, number one, you have notes in your bulletin, so if you're wondering if after you've heard me speak today, you're wondering, what was the point of what he just said? You can find the point right there in your bulletin, actually three points. And number two, there are also in the library, uh, there's a book by uh, a theologian named J.I. Packer who's out at Regent College, and that book is called Keeping the Ten Commandments. And a lot of this sermon series that we're doing right now in the fall is from that book. And so if you'd like to take a look at that book, this will enhance what you learn and your connection with God as you go through this sermon series. So there are two things. There are two copies of that book that can be checked out for a week. There are also, if you just want to get an idea of what that book's like and see if it's something you'd want to read, there are some copies, photocopies, of just the first chapter. So you can just take one of those and see if that book is something that clicks with you and would help you. Will you pray with me now as we go to God's word? Father, we come to your word today humbly, and we submit ourselves to you and to it. God, we ask that this word would rule over us, and guide our lives and live in us. God, we know that we can't even understand it, much less live it on our own. So we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, who is invisible but right here with us. Please help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we are in a sermon series Pastor Lyle began that last week on the Ten Commandments. And that sermon series will last until we begin Advent, the Christmas season. So for a number of weeks. And what we're going to do this morning is, first I'm going to make a few remarks just about the Ten Commandments as a whole, reminding us of some things about them, what they are and what they are not. We're going to talk a little bit about the Second Commandment. Well, the, the message today will be on the Second Commandment specifically, and we'll talk a little bit about the way that Israel broke that command uh, with the golden calf right after that command was given. And then we will go into three different points that I have for you today uh, to consider about this second commandment. That's where the sermon is headed this morning. So first of all, the Ten Commandments. What exactly are they and who are they for? The first thing I want to say this morning is that most people think of the Ten Commandments just as a set of rules. Now, of course, in their form, the Ten Commandments are a set of rules. They're very simple. They're very straightforward. And that's part of their power. But they are not just a list of things that you're supposed to do that could apply to anyone out there in the world. If we look at the text from last week, the first two, three verses, the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20, we can see exactly who the Ten Commandments are addressed to. They are not addressed to just anyone. 
they were addressed at the time they were given to the people of Israel. And God says, as he begins the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the Ten Commandments are addressed to the people who God has already saved. They are addressed to the people God has already rescued from darkness and oppression. They are not addressed just to anyone. We stand in the same position today as the Israelites did. God in Jesus has made a way for us to enter a new life, a way for us to come out of our life that was controlled by sin and to come into a new life that is a life with God, a life where Christ actually lives inside of us and through us. If you are not part of that new life yet, if you have not given your entire life to Jesus, you will not be able to follow the Ten Commandments. It will actually be, without the help of God's Spirit every moment, impossible for you to do it. And the only thing the Ten Commandments will do for you, if you are not walking constantly with God and Jesus, is that they will show you just how twisted and broken you are deep down on the inside. That is a powerful thing and a good thing for you to learn. But the Ten Commandments are not just for anyone. They are for people who are in relationship already with God. The second thing that I want to point out is that the Ten Commandments are not just a list of things to do. We can see that because they form a kind of progression. At least the earlier commandments are necessary in order to do the later commandments. So, for example, we learned last week that the first commandment is what? That you shall have no other God before the Lord. No other God before the Lord. And today we're going to look at the second commandment, that you would not worship anything except God. You would not worship any image or anything that you have created. The other commandments in the first half include things like a Sabbath day's rest devoted to God. Include honoring your mother and father and not taking the name of the Lord in vain. These commandments point at a radical, a very deep change in who you are. To change who your God actually is, not who you say your God is or what you say is the most important thing, but to change deep down what is actually for you the most important thing, the, the deepest part of reality, that is a fundamental change in who you are. And without that change and the other changes taking place, you will not be able to fulfill fully the second half of the Ten Commandments. Things like not murdering, not stealing, not lying, not committing adultery, uh, not coveting things, wanting things that you don't have. Of course, you might be able to follow those as rules that you just tick off and say, yes, I've never murdered anyone. But as we know, as we know from Jesus, these commandments aren't just rules. They point at a larger picture of who a person is supposed to be. 
not just a person who doesn't murder, but a person who is not angry with his brother, a person who is not an angry person. Unless you have become the person that the first half of the Ten Commandments show us we should be, you will not be able to fulfill the second half. They form a kind of progression, and they are not just a set of rules. They are a revelation about who God is and who we are supposed to be. We enter into this new life through Jesus. He is the way in. And only through Jesus can we stay in this new life and can we follow it. Things like the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and various other parts of Scripture show us what that new life is like. They show us what we should be becoming, we should be becoming as we follow Christ. So now let's dive into this second commandment. Let me read it for you. I'll read it from a slightly different version. This is the English Standard Version. God says to the Israelites, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. First, we should be clear about what exactly this commandment is saying. The first commandment, you will remember, was that you would have no God before the Lord. No other God or no God placed above the Lord your God. The second commandment is closely related, but it is slightly different. It is not saying simply that we shouldn't worship other gods, but that we should not worship images. We should not make things and then worship them, bow down to them. That is the specific thing that is being prohibited in the second commandment. So, for example, even if you said, the Lord is my one true God, he is the God I worship, the second commandment is prohibiting you. It is saying, do not then go and make something up. Make up your own idea or your own image of what that God is like and worship that. Do not use anything that you have made to worship God. And this is the commandment, as you know, that the Israelites break almost immediately after it's been made. So remember that story for a minute with me. This is an incredible story. The Israelites were brought out of Egypt. And I know we've heard the story so many times that it maybe doesn't have power for us, but this is something that had never before happened in the history of the world. The ancient world was a place of slavery for most people. It was a place where almost everyone had slaves and whole people groups were enslaved by all kinds of empires. And no one had ever broken out of that. 
I think no one had ever even thought of being able to break out of that. The leaders of the ancient world were thought to be gods. Imagine yourself for a minute living in that kind of an environment. There is no way out. There will never be any escape. And Moses shows up, and within a year, the Israelites, millions of people, have left Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world. The army of Pharaoh has been destroyed. The army of a god. This incredible event actually threw the ancient world into chaos. If you look at the next three to 400 years of ancient history, it is completely chaotic in the Middle East. Uh, different groups of people are rebelling against their own leaders all over the place, and empires fall to the ground. Why? Because they had hope. They saw someone break the yoke of slavery, and they saw that maybe there is a God that is more powerful than these gods we have been forced to serve. But the Israelites come out of that, and they're in the desert, and now they're terrified. They are in a place that that I think we would all be terrified if we were in. No food, no water, millions of people in the wilderness. There's a mountain with a burning fire on top of it. And Moses says, I'm going to go up that mountain and I'm going to stay up there for a while. Don't worry, just stay here and wait. And they wait for weeks and weeks. And finally they say, we've got to do something. And what they decide to do is to worship the God who delivered them from Egypt. They don't decide to worship a different God, mind you. They decide to worship the God that they have just seen part the Red Sea. They're kind of afraid of him because he's actually killed a lot of people around them. They decide they need to worship him, and so they worship him in the way that they know. They say, what is the one thing we know about this God? Above everything else, we know that this God is power. This God is all-powerful. And what is the way that people in the ancient Middle East worship, a, worship something that is full of power? It's very consistent. All through the cultures of the ancient Middle East, they use a bull. A bull is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of power and life. And so, very naturally, they had worshipped bulls in Egypt. They make a bull, and they use this golden calf, this golden bull, to worship the Lord only because they are using this bull to worship the Lord, they begin to worship wrongly. I'm not going to say, because we have younger people in the congregation today, exactly how they would have worshipped worshipped God using this bull, but you go ahead and go Google it, if you'd like, and figure out how ancient cultures worshipped a bull. And there are some very bad things that were done in order to worship of this image of power and life. So they begin worshiping the bull, and God is so upset about this. Moses comes down off the mountain, you know, with the Ten Commandments in his hands, and he smashes them, and then he says to his brothers, the Levites, he says, who is with me? And whoever comes to him, he says, get a sword and go through the camp and kill anyone you find worshiping in the wrong way. Cut them down, even if it's your family, or your neighbor, or your friend. And the Levites run through the camp, killing people until the worship ends. You've got to imagine this would have been quite difficult to stop the worship of several million people. You can't just, Moses can't just stay there and say, hey, here I am, stop. 
They can't all hear him at once. So this is what happens. The Israelites break this command, not by worshiping a different God, but by worshiping the God who saved them in the wrong way, by worshiping an image. We can see that it is extremely important to God, for some reason, that we don't worship images. It's so important to him that he had Moses send people through the camp to literally kill in order to stop the wrong worship. Because something worse was happening. Something worse than killing was going on in that place. We see in the commandment itself, this is one of the longer commandments because it's got some explanation to it. We see in the commandment itself, God is saying that if someone worships an image, they actually hate him. They will become the kind of person who hates God and that he will punish not only them, but their family for three or four generations. We'll see why that is in a moment. Notice also that the love of God is there. Those who follow him and love him, he will bless for thousands of generations. So why is this so important? And why must we avoid worshiping images? The first point I want to bring this morning is that you become like what you worship. You become like whatever you worship. This is a truth found throughout the Bible and that you can prove true if you just think about common experience in your life. Human beings have a deep need for meaning. We have a need to find purpose for the things that we do in something outside of ourselves. And in fact, we always do this. Not just sometimes, but always. Human beings cannot live without meaning. I think this is part of the epidemic of depression and um, self-harm and suicide that's going on in our culture, is that when a person doesn't have meaning, when the actions that they take part in every day are simply the actions themselves and don't have anything to do with anything beyond themselves, that person loses hope and eventually dies. You can die from a lack of meaning. And the way that we find meaning is worship. Worship in a number of ways. So what is worship? Worship is when we give ourselves our will, our desires, our energy, and our thoughts. We give those things to someone or something else. That is worship. It can be done on a Sunday morning in church by raising your hands if in your heart you are really giving those parts of you to God. It is also done in every action you take. Something is worshiped. We've all had this kind of experience. We see something that's good, something that's truly good. We love it, and then we begin to do things for its sake. Examples of this would be things like falling in love. We see a person, and we see the good things in them. And we begin to love them, and then we begin to act for them. 
in order to be closer to them, be with them, even to become more like them. Other examples would be becoming a fan of something. Sometimes people become fans in order to gain meaning in their life. Because their actions don't have meaning, they place their, uh, they place their trust in something else. Or taking on a career can also be an act of worship. You see a job that you really love, and your whole mind and personality and energy begin to get caught up in it. And in fact, every form of addiction is nothing more than an extreme case of worship. Nothing more than an extreme case of worship of something other than God. When our ancestors worshipped things in this way, it was natural for them in every culture all around the world to make images of those things. And then to bow down to those images, to actually put their bodies into worship. We have come to a point in the history of the human race where most of the world has given up that sort of worship, and that is a great advance. But don't think for a minute that that means human beings no longer worship images or things other than God. John Calvin used to say that the human heart is like an idol factory, a factory that makes idols, images to worship constantly and gives itself over to them in order to gain meaning. And it is a law of human nature that whatever we worship, whatever image we give ourselves over to, we will become more like that thing. And if that thing, the ultimate thing that we worship, is anything other than God, it will twist our soul, and eventually it will destroy us. It will twist our soul, it will destroy us, it will twist the people around us, it will destroy our families, and this is why it is so important to God. God sees the things that are not seen, and so he can see what's really most important. And we see throughout the Bible that life or death is not the most important thing. The most important thing are the things that are eternal, unseen, And so when we twist our souls and become warped on the inside by worshiping an image, something other than God, that is something that is eternal, that harms us forever. And this is far more important to God than just our physical life on earth. Next point I would like to make. I think this commandment, in addition, teaches us something very important about God. And that is that God is invisible. This is a simple point, but it is extremely important. God has been trying to show us ever since the beginning of time. He's been trying to show us that though you cannot see him, he is absolutely real. Even though God is invisible, he is real. In fact, he is the foundation of reality. And over and over again, we human beings are distracted by the things that we can see. We are distracted by what we can see. The physical world, the visible world, is kind of overwhelming, isn't it? 
You can't see God. I once uh, led another youth group before I was here at this church, and there was a young woman in that youth group who was constantly upset uh, because she wanted to worship God, but she just couldn't bring herself to worship something that she couldn't see. And this is a problem uh, that we have always had. There is a real spiritual world. The heavens, or just heaven, as the Bible talks about it, is real. It is a place. It is all around us. It is connected to this physical world, but you cannot see it. And it, in fact, is not the lesser of the two realities. It is the greater. This is what God is trying to get through to us. So I want to ask you today, do you really believe that there is a spiritual world? Don't answer unless you want to be embarrassed. But do you really believe that right now, that what you can see and experience with your five senses in this room is only a small part of what is actually happening here? That there is far more happening right here that you cannot see than what you can see? That is a fundamental question for your life. If you don't really believe, if your belief that there is some other unseen world is just kind of shaky, you will not be able to trust Jesus in the way that he wants you to. You will not be able to follow God in the way that he wants you to. You will not be able to pray and have your prayers answered because you won't really trust that there's anything out there to answer your prayers. You will not grow. You will not live as a Christian, even if you say that you are one. God is invisible. Third, I'd like to say this morning that even though God prohibits us making images for ourselves, worshiping anything that is visible and seen because he is invisible, God has been very, very kind to us. He knows that we are weak and that we have trouble worshiping what we can't get our heads around, what we can't see and experience. And God has given us an image to worship. He has given us an image to worship. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul says this, Christ, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn son over all creation. In the Greek text, the word that's used is akon, which is where we get the word icon. An icon, an image of what God is like, has been given to us where? In Jesus. In Jesus. He is the image of the God that we can't see. If you want to know what God is like, you want to be able to wrap your head around God, there is a very simple thing for you to do. Look at Jesus. He is exactly like God. 
And this shouldn't surprise us. From the very beginning of the Bible, there are hints and clues that the thing that displays God in his fullness the best in this world is human personality. Everything that's been created does reflect God's greatness and what God is like in some way. But even in Genesis chapter 1, we can see that the thing that is most like God is what? Human personality. When God comes to the sixth day and he creates man and he creates woman, he creates them what? In his own image. Each one of us bears, carries, in a warped way, because of our sin, an image of what God is like. We can see it in each other, but that image is not correct enough. It is not perfect enough for us to worship it. For us to worship each other would be death. But in Christ, there was a human being who was so perfect, so right on the inside, that we can worship him, and by worshiping him, we'll be drawn closer to God, not sent further away. It will straighten out our souls to worship him, to serve him. So, so what? What then should we do? And the simple answer, and what I want you to walk away with this morning is this. We should worship Jesus. It's that simple. We should worship Jesus and worship him in that full sense. Jesus is to be the one that we fall in love with, that we want to become more like, that we give over our will, our desires, our love, our energy, our time, our deepest selves given over to him. That experience that we've all had of falling in love with a person or something or an experience, that kind of experience of falling in love with something, that's how we should become toward Jesus. He has to be the thing that captivates us and toward which all of our actions are pointed. He must be the source of all meaning in our lives. What makes you a good person? What makes your life worthwhile. It's not how successful you are. It's not your accomplishments. It's not if you're well-known. It's not what people think of you. Not your reputation. It's not your careers. It's not your skills. It's not how competent you are. It's not if you have an amazing family or if you have money or if you have a lot of stuff or if you really enjoy your life or feel fulfilled. None of that is what makes your life really worthwhile or really good. What makes your life good or not good is how much you are like Jesus on the inside. Period. What makes your life good is how much you are like Jesus on the inside. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for coming to help us. Thank you for sending your Son into the world that we could know what you are like, that we can worship him, give our lives over to him, and become more and more like him and like you.
God, I pray that we would all throw off by the power of your spirit anything else that we would worship or find our meaning or fulfillment in and that we would find ourselves only in you. I ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.